So this morning we are in, we're fast approaching the end of this letter that we've been in for some time, 1 Thessalonians. We are in chapter 5. We're in the basically last verses. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 22 this morning, so I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you may certainly grab one of those blue ones located underneath the seat around you. In that Bible, you can turn to page 988. That'll bring you to our text. So, the last two weeks, looking at this letter, we, I've titled it The Health, Healthful Habits, Healthful Habits, specifically verses 16 through 18, those habits that are conducive to good spiritual health, emotional health, physical health for that matter, for the church, for the Christian, for the advancement of the gospel. You guys remember those healthful habits by chance? There was three of them that we looked at. What was the first one? Anybody remember? Rejoice always or always rejoice? Pray without ceasing or unceasingly pray. Get, be thankful in all circumstances or in all circumstances give thanks. So those are the healthful habits for us that we need to follow and give ourselves to. This morning, we're going to look at what I am calling a healthy balance. A healthy balance, verses 19 through 22. Balance, if I were to define that word, it would go like this, a condition in which different elements are in the correct proportions, are in the correct proportions. We might talk about balance when we think of our responsibilities at home and at work, and so we might discuss, do we have the proper balance? Are we, are we out of balance, giving too much maybe to work and not enough to home, or not taking care of our work and placing our emphasis somewhere else? So there needs to be a balance, right, in our lives. But I've found this to be true, at least in my own life, and I've seen it in others as well, is that we seem to be prone to easily get out of balance in all areas of our life. We seem to be folks who go from one extreme to the other, from one ditch to the other ditch, instead of walking that balance beam rightly, like we're supposed to, keeping good balance. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, what I believe we see here is a healthy balance in relation to the the reader's reaction, the readers of this letter, toward specifically the workings of the Holy Spirit in the first century church. So a healthy balance in relation to the reader's reaction toward the workings of the Holy Spirit in the first century church. We'll look at, and I'll read it in a moment, but I just have some lead up to the text. We're going to look at five brief exhortations in this section. The first two will be negative, do not do this, 19 and 20. The remaining three are positive, do this. These five exhortations are, I don't believe they are separate statements that were meant to stand on their own, but rather they're a unit. They're a unit. Generally, that's how most commentators see it. They are a unit that go together, and they are all primarily addressing the workings or operation of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church age. More specifically, the exhortations in our text 
are focused on prophecies or prophetic utterances or revelation from God through prophets. Now, I said, if you were listening uh, closely, you may have caught that I said that these were workings of the Holy Spirit in the first century church or at the beginning of the church age. I made that specific point. Why? Whoa, I'm getting answers. Wow, okay. So, our prophecies or, and I'm going to answer why right now, our prophecies or prophetic utterances still a work of the Holy Spirit in the church today? Well, that depends on who you ask. There are two schools of thought at least two, two primary schools of thought concerning that very question in this matter and would impact how you understand and apply this section of 1 Thessalonians here in chapter 5. The one school of thought is referred to as continuationism. Continuationism, and there's degrees of understanding in this thought, but The idea is that the gifting and gifts or ministry or operations or workings of the Holy Spirit that we see described for us going on at the beginning of the church age in the first century, that all of those workings continue on to this day, continuationism. So our uh, friends right around the corner from here, Water of Life, massive, massive church there. You can't miss it. Probably the biggest church in the air in the Inland Empire. They are continuationist. So, for instance, speaking in tongues, which was a, and I'm using past tense, so I'm giving away my position right away, which was a real gift of the Holy Spirit, along with prophetic utterances or prophecy, along with quite a few other things as well, but certainly those things. Water of Life, for instance, would believe that those giftings or those workings of the Holy Spirit continue on for the church today. The other group, which is the group I would find myself in, and along with the leadership of this church, is cessationism. Cessationism. That's the teaching that some of the workings of the Holy Spirit have ceased. That they were active in the first century church, that they served the purpose for which they were at work and were given to the church. Once having served their purpose, those gifts have ceased. They're no longer normative or operational within the church today. Okay? You with me so far? So for some of you, I mean, maybe this is new. This is not, I've talked about this before when we went through Romans and we talked about the gifts of the Spirit, but this church is not a continuationist church. We are cessationist, meaning the leadership is cessationist. So you may come from different places and may not be sure about these things. Uh, If you came from a Calvary chapel, then you, you may not even know, but Calvary chapels are continuationist. 
generally speaking. Okay? So they would still practice speaking in tongues, what they believe to be speaking in tongues, or that gifting of the Spirit, and other such giftings. So, my position is, is that speaking in tongues, prophecies, or prophetic utterances are no longer a normal operation of the Spirit in the church today. Okay? And again, not every Christian would agree. They don't. They don't all agree. It's not the same thing as saying something like, Jesus is God, and then going on to say, now not every Christian agrees. That's not true. That statement wouldn't hold water. Every Christian must agree that Jesus Christ is divine. Otherwise, they're not a Christian. Okay? But there are Christian folks, good Christian folks, who disagree on this matter. And then churches generally divide, or often divide, around this very matter. For the sake of that church, for those churches, it's, it's, it would be helpful for them to divide on this matter. So, let me say this. Both views cannot be right. Okay, can we just say that? Somebody's wrong. But this is not a view that will determine whether or not you spend eternity with the Lord. But it doesn't mean it's not an important view or understanding or doctrine. It is important for a host of reasons that we won't get into today, but even just in how we apply this particular passage. But someone's wrong. So, if the Spirit is still not uh, gifting people with the gift of speaking in tongues or prophetic utterances, and yet they are claiming to be utilizing that gift, and that is not true, then they're deceived. If the Spirit is still operating in that way, then we're in trouble, I guess, because we're not giving way to that work of the Spirit in our lives. And that's basically the rub both ways. Both sides kind of have that position. Well, you're denying the work of the Spirit, and we say you're working things that are not the Spirit. Okay? So we can be big boys and girls and, and just realize this is an issue where Christians divide, but hopefully it doesn't, we don't draw a line that says, okay, you're outside the kingdom of God, I'm inside the kingdom of God. That's not the case in this case. Certainly it would be if you deny something like the divinity of Christ, as I said. So a Jehovah Witness would be outside of the kingdom of God. They would not be a Christian. A Mormon would not be the Christian because they deny truths that are necessary to salvation. Are you with me? All right. So I've, I think I've brought this book up before. There's so many practical uses for this book and just like keeping it by your bedside to hold the door open or beating an intruder with it or reading it, reading it, or for my wife who's kind of short so she can get and reach the top shelf. (laughs) I mean that in the most loving way. So here in this book, it's called Biblical Doctrine. It's just recently come out, not too long ago. It's fantastic. And generally, you could read through this entire thing, and it would, it would just, for the most part, line up perfectly with our doctrinal statement. If you want to know what this church believes, the leadership of this church believes and will teach, you can find it right here. Biblical Doctrine, John MacArthur, Richard Mayhew, General Editors, Systematic Summary of Bible Truth. 
So I wanted to read a section for you from, from this book concerning prophets. And I would agree with the statement I'm going to read to you now. The Greek word translated, nope, thank you. The Greek word, that's a different one, uh, translated prophet means one who speaks in the place of or a spokesman. New Testament prophets then, and there were New Testament prophets in the first century church, were spokesmen for God, though second in rank to the apostles. As in the Old Testament, prophets in the early church were primarily distinguished by their reception and delivery of new revelation from God. Though sometimes they expanded or expounded on previously revealed truth. So there's references in here that you can look up as you're reading through the material to demonstrate the validity and truthfulness of the statements that the editors are making here or the writers. Due to the constant threat of false prophets, the prophet's message was to be tested against truth that had been previously revealed. The genuineness of a New Testament prophet's ministry, like that of his Old Testament counterparts, could be determined by his doctrinal accuracy. Just keep hold these thoughts in your mind, they'll come up later. Moreover, true prophets were characterized by both moral purity and revelatory accuracy. Those who taught false doctrine, who lived in unrestrained lust and greed, or who delivered supposed revelation from God that was inaccurate and untrue were to be disregarded by God's people as false prophets. When the canon of New Testament revelation was complete, what does that mean? When the Bible was completed, the prophetic office was no longer necessary because remember what it was for, for giving new revelation from God and passed off the scene. Like the apostles, prophets were given to lay the revelatory foundation for the church, Ephesians 2.20. How many times do you lay a foundation? Once. Once that foundation was established, the work of the apostles and prophets in the church age was completed. Nonetheless, the proclamation of the prophetic word, this is the prophetic word, the proclamation of the prophetic word continues through the faithful preaching of Scripture. But here we have it. We have the prophetic word, and it's complete. In the future, after the church age ends, God will again raise up prophets to accomplish his revelatory purposes. We see that in Revelation 11.3. So there will be an exercise of this giftedness again, the, this operation of the Spirit on the earth among God's people or through God's people. Okay? Another commentator commentating specifically on this passage says this, the prophetic function held an important place in the life of the early church. In Ephesians 4.11, the prophets are named next to the apostles as Christ's gift to the church. They were the human channels through whom the Spirit made known his will and purpose for his people. 
The prophetic revelation might at times concern the future, but not necessarily so. In other words, it wasn't just future revealings. The prophetic message generally was in the nature of instruction and guidance concerning the present. The basic function of the prophet was to speak forth the counsels of God. Through this important gift, the Spirit guided the development of the life and doctrine of the young church. With the completion of the divine revelation in the New Testament canon, such direct communication of new spiritual revelation has ceased. I agree completely, but not every Christian does. Okay? So, think about it. You have the early church. That's who this letter was written to. The canon is still being completed. The scriptures are still being written. You have the Old Testament in its totality, but the New Testament is being written, being formed, being brought together. So all that God would have to say to the church is not yet recorded. So to guide the church, to instruct the church, he gave gifts to the church, prophets, who would speak these prophetic utterances to instruct, to guide, to exhort, the church as it was forming at the beginning of the church age. You with me? So I say all that because I walk into this passage with that understanding, which then means I will understand it a certain way and make application of it a certain way. Whereas my continuationist friends who believe that prophetic utterances, the gift of prophecy, prophets still exist along with speaking in tongues and things of that nature, they'll understand this passage a little bit differently or apply it certainly differently, okay? So let's look at the passage. By the way, if you have questions about that, uh, let us know, and we can recommend other resources to you as you try to work through those things. I would say living in Southern California, growing up here, this is the home of continuationists. I mean, this, this, if you know, likely you have been exposed to those kinds of teachings and understandings, and there's varying degrees. Pentecostals would be continuationists to another degree. Um, so, but here we are, cessationist, living amongst all of our continuationist friends here in SoCal. So, verse this, 5, 19 through 22, here are the instructions, five exhortations, all going together, all working together to make a point. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, I read to you from the English Standard Version, which is the version we use here. I've said this to you before, but I want to point it out again. There's, there's no punctuation in the original writing. So as they look at the Greek, they have to figure out, we, you know, we bring it into the English, we provide the punctuation in our translations. But punctuation can, uh, it has to be determined where sentences go or end or commas go. You with me? So if you look closely when you're comparing translations, 
you will notice that sometimes they are not the same when it comes to punctuation because they are seeing the thoughts in the original being communicated maybe a little bit differently than another translation is or that these two sentences should go together as, a be, as opposed to being separate sentences that have nothing to do with one another. So, I think the New American Standard Bible, I like it, I prefer it in this case, in this passage, concerning their punctuation, all right? So let me show that to you. These are just things for you to observe when you're reading your Bibles and why I would recommend a comparison of translations when you're studying the Bible, not just having one but comparing and good translations. And if you don't know what a good translation is, please ask us. Do not, but they're not all equal. Let me just say that. Because I'm afraid, I, I hear Christians talk about tra- Bible translations as if you can just walk into the store, pick any translation off the shelf, and you've got one that's as good as another. They are not. They are not. These are important things for you to understand. The original, and it's Greek, in Hebrew and the, the, those languages, solid. But now we've got to bring it into the English translation. And so there are varying approaches to how people bring those in and the, and the particular scholars that are doing that. And so translations matter. They matter. They don't not matter in the sense that, ah, whatever, whatever translation, it's all the same. No, it's not. The original manuscripts are the same. You get me? So this is a perfect example. This is the NASB. I prefer this one because I think it captures what we need to see here. Do not quench the spirit. Wait a minute, Jeremy. That's what the other translation said. Yes, but the other translation has a period. This has a semicolon, all right? So here we go. It's going to present another statement that is its own particular sentence, but it's not disconnected from the previous statement. The two, that's what the semicolon's there for, the two are connected in some way, which is exactly what I believe to be the case. Do not quench the spirit, semicolon, do not despise prophetic utterances, period. 21. But, in contrast to that, examine everything carefully, semicolon, hold fast to that which is good, semicolon, abstain from every form of evil. You got me? So, the NIV as well puts a semicolon at the end of verse 19, seeing those two statements. NIV 84 uh, puts those, because there's different years of translations as well, puts those things together. So, Aren't you glad you have me looking into all this stuff for you? But I tell you, I don't just want to tell you and say, ah, oh, this is how it is. I'm, I also want to train you to consider these things for yourself so that you can be your own feeders and be careful and cautious when you're studying the word of God on your own. All right, so the first exhortation, do not quench the spirit. That's what we'll look at now. This general statement, as we've seen, is then further developed in verses that follow because if he said just do not quench the spirit, well, what does that mean? I mean, what, what, are, you, what are you getting at, Paul? He'll go on to describe what he's getting at. But if it was just do not quench the spirit, you just pull it out, rip it out, which I've seen done. So that, that phrase, do not quench the spirit, is applied to all, and you can make application of the principle here to other things, but it's important to see in its original context, what is Paul talking about? When he uses the phrase, what is he thinking? Well, I need context to understand that, okay? But let's look at the phrase in and of itself first. So 
Let me say this real quick. Both these first two commands, they're prohibiting something, right? They're saying, don't do this. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, as the NASB puts it, which I like too. Do not despise prophecies. The I is prophetic utterances, utterances coming forth that are prophetic. Uh, both are in the present imperative. And so what that generally means is that uh, Paul is telling them to stop something that's already in progress. That's what it generally means. You're, if it's in the present, you're doing this, stop doing it, okay? Um, but it doesn't have to be the case. These could be preventative rather than uh, curative commands. In other words, there's not a present issue going on, but rather I want to make sure that you're always never, in any case, uh, quenching the spirit and, what's the other one? Despising prophetic utterances, <laughs> okay? But it could be, it's curative, meaning that not just preventative, we don't know. I'll just say that. That'll come back up in a moment here, okay? So I wanted to set the ground for that. We don't know. And it's likely that maybe there was something going on again. Remember, Timothy received word, I mean, Timothy had brought word back about how the church is doing. Paul seems to be addressing matters from that report, but it could just be that this is something he wants to address because he's seen it as a, a danger, a potential danger, but maybe it's specifically for this church that he wants to address this matter because he knows it's a, some type of problem there, okay? We'll get to that because here's the thing. We don't have a lot of information. We just got these five exhortations. They're pretty brief and short, and it doesn't give a whole lot of explanation for them, right? So we'll draw some conclusions, but they're speculations because we just don't know. All right, quench. Do not quench the spirit. The Greek verb was used literally of extinguishing a flame. Extinguishing a flame. It was also used figuratively of suppressing or stifling something. So the NET Bible translates it, do not extinguish the spirit. Extinguish, which is fine. Uh, Do not quench. Uh, Do not extinguish. One writer points out that the reference is not to the person of the Holy Spirit himself. He can never be extinguished, okay? So Paul's not saying, you know, don't put out the spirit. There's something about, it's the workings of the spirit. You You can't possibly, you don't have the kind of power to put out the spirit, Okay, extinguish him, but there is in a, a way you can extinguish his work, his workings, his operations. Uh, the NIV 84 translates it, do not put out the Spirit's fire. The Spirit's fire. Oh, I love the NIV. You know, they, so fire is not there. The word fire is not there, okay? It's just Spirit. But the NIV tries to communicate, more so it'll communicate what they think the thought is as opposed to just literally what the words are that are there. So even though the word fire isn't there, I think that fits the general idea. One writer says, looking at that phrase in the NIV, do not put out the Spirit's fire, it attempts to convey the connotation of the verb that is there. It's, it's what the verb implies, put out, extinguish. It generally does speak to fire, even metamorphically, stifle, suppress. 
In addition, spirit, the Holy Spirit, is symbolized by fire in the New Testament. So it's not out of bounds to have those thoughts in your mind. We see that in Acts 2. So the verb put out indicates that this that was translated put out or extinguish or quench, this probably was the image Paul had in mind, and that's why he chose that verb. He used a verb that normally speaks to putting out a fire. So do not put out, do not extinguish, do not quench, pour water on, if you will, but that's even, that's not in, I'm adding to it now, the spirit, the spirit's fire, you know? It's probably the idea, thinking. But how were they, or how might they have, quenched or extinguished the Spirit or put out the Holy Spirit's fire, if you will? How, how would that be? How, what was taking place? We'll look back at the text. The next thing Paul says is, do not despise prophecies. All right? Do not despise prophecies. And again, I prefer a semicolon at the end of the first statement because then this statement is directly related back to this is what you're doing in quenching or what you could do. This is what it would look like in one case to quench the spirit, despise prophecies. You with me so far? So do not treat prophecies with contempt is another way to translate it. It's just, again, it's a specific action whereby the spirit may be quenched. One writer points out that, that that verb, the verb rendered treat with contempt or despise, it's a strong word. It means to set down as of no account, to set as not, to reject with contempt. Another translation, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Another translation puts it this way, don't treat prophecies as if they amount to nothing. Okay? Now remember what I said, right? At the beginning, is, so is this for us today? Well, it would be for us today if we believed that the gifting of the Spirit continued to include prophetic utterances through God's people in the church. Then this would apply to us today. But this is exactly the pushback I get from my continuationist friends because they say, well, you... You are disobeying this very passage. You are quenching the Spirit because you despise prophetic utterances. No, I don't despise prophetic utterances as long as they are prophetic utterances, and I believe those stopped sometime in the beginning of the church age after they fulfilled their purpose that God had intended, after the completion of the prophetic revelation that we have here in writing. You see? And so the... Debate goes on. All right? So, where are we? All right, so, why, though, were they, or may they have been, or Paul was worried about either way, but let's just, for the moment, take the side that this was curative, that not just preventative, that Paul was addressing something, he wanted them to stop doing this. Why were they doing this? Why would, why would this young church be despising, treating with contempt, prophetic utterances that were coming to them? These revelations from God through these people, through prophets. Do you know why? Huh? 
Anybody know why? Nobody knows why. Because the text doesn't tell us. It does not tell us. So we need to be really careful here. We can make some speculations. We can try to figure it out. So scholars do that. And they say, well, perhaps there were, had been abuses of the gift, which led to these restrictions by this particular church. For example, and this is drawing in other scripture that we have to try to make a, an intelligent guess, all right? In 2 Thessalonians 2, another, the second letter written to the Thessalonians, Paul asks that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, someone was saying to them, the day of the Lord's already come. What? Which was very confusing to them. So Paul's saying, don't be shaken by that if you hear such things. And the writer goes on to say, perhaps some false prophecies like that had resulted in a ban on all prophetic utterances. In other words, hey, we found out that's not true, yet you claim to be speaking for God, and that's not the case at all. You know what? Let's shut down this prophetic utterance thing. We can't trust these people. You know? I'm, I'm weary. I'm, I'm a little cynical about these things. Another writer said, at least a little later, certain self, concerning that passage in 2 Thessalonians, certain self-deceived individuals considered their own speculations on the subject to be the voice of the Spirit. They're self-deceived. They thought they were speaking for God, but if they were speaking for God, they certainly wouldn't contradict God. And God had already spoken through his servant, the Apostle Paul. You get me? Such abuses of prophecy would naturally cause the more calm and discerning to react against the gift, okay? So we don't know exactly why. We don't know. I could speculate too. There could be a, a number of reasons. I mean, for one thing, they came from a pagan background. Maybe they just wanted to be extra cautious when Bob stands up and starts saying, I'm speaking for God. What are you talking, Bob, you were just a pagan three months ago I know you're a Christian now, but I don't know, man. I mean, we hear some crazy things from our pagan friends, and we know that that was all bogus. Now we know the truth. So let's just put a pause on you supposedly speaking directly to us for God, like God's just channeling right through you, right? Really? I don't know. I think we should, I don't, I'm not sure, you know? But it was even more than not sure. They had contempt for them. They didn't want anything to do with them. So it makes me think, that some bad information got to them through the self-deceived, you know, hey, look, I'm speaking right for God. Here it is. Blah, 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 blah. And then they speak it out. They say, thus saith the Lord. Then they come to find out that was not from the Lord. All right, no one is no longer making any claims that they speak for the Lord. And remember, they did, at this time, they didn't have the entire New Testament, and prophecy was a real gift, but they, this is a young church, they're still growing in their understanding of things, and it was a real gift that God used to help his church and guide his church and exhort his church in the first days or period of time, not days, but period of time of the church as it's growing up, and this is still being completed. So they should not be completely doing away with these prophetic utterances because they were 
They are for their good. They are for their edification. They need them in the, as the young church, just as you and I need the edification and exhortation of this prophetic word. Okay? So, balance. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies or prophetic utterances. But there's balance here, which I'm going to have to really speed up. There's balance. If that was all Paul said, Think about it. If that's all he said to this church, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, period, end of story. That would not be balance because then there'd be a whole host of issues, potentially, right? The church may have then swung the other way. So they're rejecting prophetic utterances for whatever reason. We don't know the exact reason. They're despising them. They're holding them in with contempt. They think nothing of them, very little of them. They don't want to hear them. No, you have a prophetic utterance. Oh, no, you don't, okay? But what now if they take this command without the other commands and they say, all right, I guess we just have to, you have a prophetic utterance? Go for it. That means then they'd extreme to the, or swing to the other extreme and they would, as one writer says, swallow everything that is purported to be a prophetic utterance. Just, okay, got to accept it. No balance. But Paul provides balance. What does he say in verse 21? Huh? Test everything. Test everything. One writer says the shift to positive statements. So now he'll begin to make three positive commands. Test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from any form of evil. Okay? The shift to these positive statements and the presence of the word but in the text at this point marks the beginning of statements intended to balance out what Paul just said in verses 19 and 20. One writer says it this way, rather than stifle the spirit by the contemptuous rejection of the prophetic word, the church was to give prophecy a careful hearing. However, Paul did not recommend a gullible acceptance of every message claiming divine authority, which unfortunately is exactly what goes on today. Someone who identifies as Christian or says they have a word from the Lord or even just they are a pastor of sorts, often people just swallow that wholesale. Like whatever they say. Well, they're a Christian. They had a Bible. How do you even know? You don't even know this, Joe. Which is the danger of receiving you know, your teaching and instruction through some media such as television when you don't even really know those people some danger there, especially if you're not even testing what they're saying, let alone test the guy. Anyway, Paul did not recommend a gullible acceptance of every message, claiming divine authority. The presence of false teachers in the church from an early date made blanket acceptance of prophetic claims foolhardy. Do you remember all the warnings? You read through the New Testament, it's over and over and over again, beware. Even Jesus himself spoke to the matter. Beware of what? False prophets. Those who claim to speak for God, but do not. And in this case, it could just be, it could even be a legitimate just Christian who thinking he has the gift or wanting to maybe draw attention to himself or herself, saying, I have this, I can give you a prophetic utterance. Look at me, you know? But that is, they don't have the gifting. They don't, the Holy Spirit is not working through them in that way. So they say things that are not coming from God, but rather are in their own head. Very dangerous. 
Don't just swallow whatever you have coming at you claiming to be divine revelation. Test everything. Test implies, the word implies careful examination. Carefully examine everything, okay? Everything is first speaking to the issue of these prophetic utterances, but it's broad enough to include everything else in the Christian life that presents itself to you as if it were from God. You need to test it. One writer says it this way, the duty to test prophesyings is thus brought under the universal rule that Christians must practice the testing of all things that ask their acceptance as being from God. Ignorant and untested acceptance of all that claims to be from God is not demanded in any area of the Christian life. Gullibility is not a Christian virtue. It is dangerous to the Christian life. And if you talk to a scam artist within religious circles or after they've confessed to their sins or whatever, you'll generally find them to say the same thing about Christians is that they find them to be quite gullible, especially when it comes to this very matter. You think about it. Just think about what goes on under the guise of Christianity and on television and you got, you know, supposed healings and everything, right? Right? Why do you think, why do you think that occurs? Well, because they have the Spirit of God and they're healing people. Yeah, no. Nope. You do the research, you find out this is bogus. Not true, it's not happening. But if I can convince you that I've got the Spirit of God, well, how am I going to convince you to do that? Well, I'll heal someone. Get up, you know, and out of the chair he comes, out of the wheelchair. Or even better, I love these. You had a slip nerve, but you no longer have one, right? Yes, I feel unbelievably well. But you can't see any of it, right? But the guy professes, I feel unbelievably well. He may, she may feel well, but the slip nerve just slipped back in because he had the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a watch. So now you see that, you go, well, clearly this man is blessed and is the word that gets thrown around all the time, anointed. And so he has the spirit. Now, whatever he says, I should listen to. And then he goes on to say, and oh, by the way, if you sow your seed into our ministry, which is money, God will bless you just like he blesses me. In fact, I'm going to pray for your healing right now because I just got a word from the Lord that there's someone out there with cancer. Wow, that's okay, yeah. <laughs> or someone out there that's hurting, you know, or they've got a slip disc or all the other not, right? I'm going to pray for you. I, uh, yes, you know it's you. Send in your money in good faith. Send it in and this healing will come to you. Beloved, that's on, that's television. People, hey, these people couldn't be on TV if someone wasn't supporting them. So that's the extreme, but listen, it goes for everything, which is why I spend a great deal of time like explaining to you the Bible and translations and the language and test what you hear. Look for yourself. Know that it is true. Don't just swallow it whole. And for that matter, hopefully you're, you, as a church, you have tested me. 
right? Because if you haven't, then I shouldn't be up here. And if you've tested me and found me not to be genuine or the real deal, I shouldn't be speaking to you. I know. So the, the last part really is quick here because... All right, so by the way, notice he doesn't say, he says test everything, but he doesn't say how. Right? He doesn't say how. All right. Well, we do have some standards or an important standard that has already been established. We, we know that. So for instance, he thought well of the Bereans because they tested the apostolic teaching on the basis of its agreement with already previously revealed and verified scripture or revelation from God, which would be the Old Testament, right? So Paul, you have a word for us? Let's hear it. We're going to test it. We're going to see, does it line up or is it in contrast to what God we know has already revealed? So I would say at minimum, that's the standard. Beyond that, if back then, if someone was claiming to speak for God yet was living a sinful, gross life, then why in the world would you think that's a test? They're not genuine because if they are of God and have the spirit of God, but living willfully in gross sin, then why in the world would you listen to what they say or believe for a moment they have the spirit of God dwelling in them? That's just not the case. It can't be the case. A testing. So you can test the speaker, you can test his words, okay? So after carefully, this church, after carefully examining these prophetic utterances, they were to embrace what was genuine, but turn away from or reject that which was not from God, but rather parading itself as if it was, which is a very evil thing, a form of evil, if you will. So that's what he says. That's what he goes on to say. It's that basic. Hold fast what is good after you've tested it in the passage, 1 Thess 5, 21 through 22, testing everything, hold fast with that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. The word good in the verse was used of what was genuine as opposed to counterfeit, specifically of coins. Okay? So you test it. If it's genuine and not counterfeit, hold fast to it. Is that hard to understand? Hold fast to it. Uh, Embrace it. Retain it. Remember it. Allow it to have its way with you. It's good. It's from the Lord. So Paul doesn't want them to miss out on these prophetic utterances that are coming, the real ones that are coming from the Spirit of God in order to edify, strengthen, encourage, guide this church, this little church, this new church. He doesn't want them to miss that. He doesn't want to miss miss the work of the Spirit in their lives. And this is one way the Spirit was working at that time in the early church. Okay? You with me? Because I'm going to try to make application real quick here at the end. But if it wasn't genuine, then you are to abstain from it. Every form of evil. As one writer says, evil presents itself in many forms. The essence of evil does not change, but ever seeks new and attractive forms. Through that, it may embody itself. These must be recognized and resisted. In other words, it's evil. It lacks those qualities and conditions that would make it worthy of the claim that it is making. Remember, this would be a claim that this is divine, direct revelation. And yet it is not. We tested it. We tested you. We found you not to be 
a true speaker of God. How could you be? You're living in a moral life. Or we tested the words. We held them up against the revelation that we know is from God, and it's contradicting it. And yet you claim that it is from the Spirit himself, from God. That is quite a form of evil. All right, so that's the passage. What do we do with it? That's a great question. I don't know. I, I mean, I've thought about it, certainly, because if I'm a continuationist, then it's, it's, I would just say, okay, so we need to, when we hear prophetic utterances and people are saying, you know, people who we believe to be uh, having this gift of the Spirit, then we don't want to despise those. We want to hear them, and as we're hearing them, we just want to make sure we're testing them, and if they are good, then great, and if not, then we reject it and we stay away from it, right? But I'm not a continuationist. So I don't believe this, direct, this command is directly for us, but there are principles here. And, I, and I, I would say, just thinking about the principle that one author, commentator, points out, he calls this whole section the cynical and the gullible. The cynical and the gullible. If a cynical person is one who believes that people are motivated by self-interest. They're distrustful, uh, cynical people of human sincerity or integrity. Just, they're on that side of the uh, equation. So they just distrust everything. Um, they think everyone is in it for the wrong reason. Cynical, yeah? Okay. Gullible are people that are easily persuaded to believe something. They just, yeah, sure, oh, you know, like, if I invest in this, I'll make a million dollars, like 20% return, that kind of thing. That sounds good, you know? Like, that's gullible. But the cynical person never wants to even listen to anything because they think everyone's in it for themselves, right? So I think just thinking through that, um, I think we can make some application. I was just thinking about, for instance, you know, churches. So if someone has a bad experience, so this principle of, listen, what I don't want to do is I don't want to miss out on the work of the Spirit. So trying to, trying to retain that thought, I don't want to work, miss out on the work of the Spirit. Well, listen, the Spirit is no longer working through prophetic utterances. It's done recorded, okay? But the Spirit does work through many other ways. So as an example, church attendance or church, going to church, people tell me that, you know, oh, I've had a really bad experience with the church, and therefore, you know, I don't trust any churches. I, I think they're all rotten, blah, 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 super cynical. Um, okay, that's, if Paul could speak to them, he'd be like, no, that's a, you're, that's a mistake. You are, in a sense, quenching the Spirit. Certainly, you're quenching the Spirit because you're pushing out the very thing that the Spirit uses to speak into your life, the church. So do not despise the church or hold the church in contempt. You need the church. But test everything. Don't just walk, I mean, I am blown away when I hear people Talk about uh, where they might attend church. They're not even asking any kind of examining questions. It's more like, do I like it? Do, does I, do, I, do I like the building's really nice? I really like the music. Have you read their doctrinal statement? What? They don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I, that would be a way of testing. What do these people believe? Have you interviewed the leadership there? Do you know anything about them? What? Nah, I just like it. 
or the opposite. So one, on one extreme, you don't involve yourself at all with the church and therefore cut off the Spirit's work in your life. On the other extreme, you involve yourself with any church, and that would be a mistake as well. You get me? That would be one application. Uh, membership in a church could be the same thing. Formal membership. You know, we practice formal membership, so people are like, I don't know, you know, I, I had a bad experience with formal membership before. Uh, well, I think formal membership is a means of the Spirit to help grow you in your faith. I think it is. I think it's a means of that. Uh, formally committing yourself to a particular body, being a part of that body, partnering in a formal way with that body, bringing yourself under the leadership of that body. Formally doing that. Yeah, you know, but I had a bad experience. I, get, I understand. But that shouldn't, then you shouldn't think, I'll always have a bad experience or I won't do it because I could have a bad experience. That would be cynical. Rather, I think you should formally partner yourself with a local ministry, but test it, you know? Make sure this makes sense. This is the right ministry that they align themselves with the word of God, those kind of things. You see the balance so not cynical, not gullible, making sure that you're allowing the Spirit of God to work in your life, not pushing him out because you've been too cynical or you've had a bad experience. And I think there are other ways we could apply that. Just remember that phrase, ignorant and untested acceptance of all that claims to be from God is not demanded in any area of the Christian life. And I think, for me, that would be the biggest application that if Christians, they tend to more, I think, uh, go to the extreme of gullibility as opposed to cynicism, where they're not even questioning the motives of whoever's up there speaking for God. They're not even thinking about that. They're like, hey, he has a Bible. I saw it. He has a Bible. And his, it says Pastor John, so he must be good. No, I, it's just not the case, guys. And just like it was in the first century church, why Paul had to give these warnings, there were false teachers everywhere. That is a way that the, that the enemy of our souls and of God works. And he parades himself not as a false teacher, but as a true teacher or as the Spirit or as God, speaking for God. That's what makes it so evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to understand it as we ought. And Father, ultimately, while we don't, or I certainly don't believe this passage has direct Application to us because we live now in a different stage of the church age where these particular giftings are no longer a regular practice of the Spirit, a working of the Spirit in the church. Certainly, Father, there are principles here. We can see uh, the mistakes uh, being made by that church, and we don't want to make those mistakes. So while we don't want to be so cynical that we uh, keep the Spirit of God, try to shut the Spirit of God out, or not even realize we're doing that, but that's what we're doing because of our poor decisions, because we're distrusting, or maybe we had really bad experience. We don't want to shut the work of the Spirit out of our lives. We need that desperately. At the same time, we need to be sure it is the work of the Spirit. We need to be sure that it is from you that it is right and true. And so we must test everything. Help us not to be gullible, just swallowing, opening our mouths and swallowing all that professes to believe or to, professes to be from you. For certainly much, much 
much that is out there that professes to be from you, God, is not. It is from the enemy. Help us consider these things seriously. In Christ's name, amen.